Welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I am joined by Jeff Nichols, who is an incredibly esteemed author, drummer, educator, all-around great guy. Jeff, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. What a nice introduction. We're here to talk about kind of a broad picture of um, the history of some British drum brands, which as an American, um, I'm kind of fascinated by because it's, it's sort of a parallel to a lot of what we had going on here in America. Uh, yes, it is. Um, I, I think we, it's parallel, but we, we obviously we were, we were a bit behind. Well, actually, we started ahead because we've been making drums in Europe and Britain for hundreds of years, obviously, and that goes back to the military, the side drum and bass drum and so on. Um, but then things changed drastically at the turn of last century when, and I suppose that's very much due to the arrival of jazz yeah. in America. Um, so people started to take the drums a lot more seriously. And, and then we had the invention of the drum kit, as, as we know it. You know, we all know the, the history of that. Sure. Um, and we were very much enamored of America. Uh, and the British companies did slavishly copy the American companies in the, you know, in the early years. Uh, of last century hmm. um so you know that that's that's where it is really you know so we were already building drums obviously uh but they were pretty outdated um and then uh we had uh, a whole history of i think you had like for instance you know in america you would have vaudeville and over here we would have music hall sure um, yeah and then uh, and then popular music was a lot of orchestra, a lot of dance orchestras were in the hotels. So we had hotel orchestras, and they, they were like the pop stars of the day. Hmm. Um, and the music they were playing was pretty crummy. You know, it was pretty outdated and sort of naff, if you know that expression. <laughs> you know, sure. so once we started to hear American music, we started to follow American music, obviously. And then the drum kit started to, you know, really take off in America, and we started to follow those designs. Um, so in a way, that's where we start. That's fascinating because it's um, in the jazz scene early on. I know that the hotels were heavily involved with the you know early jazzers like Gene Krupa and stuff when he would play, and they would a lot of radio companies would broadcast from the hotel, and that's what people would listen to and say live from whatever hotel. And um, so it's just interesting that that's also been happening in different parts of the world sure. uh, the the involvement of hotels which that that went away boy you don't there's no <laughs> real you know relevancy with hotels and music now no no well i suppose that's due to the arrival of the radio um and cinema yes. uh you know the talkies disappeared and um you know so all that uh all that pre-war sort of um you know, you know uh, traps and sound effects and all that sort of stuff. Um, it was all part of sure. part of the music, and uh, the war is the big thing, really. Uh, so, uh, over here, as you can imagine, uh, the biggest thing that's ever yeah, happened. Um, and that changed it. But but before that, things were were getting going. I mean, I um, in terms of the development of British drums. I, I, I should big shout out to I'm indebted when I first became interested in this, which is um, I suppose in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a fellow in, in London called Lou Dias. Uh, that's D I A S. 
Lou Dyerson. Lou mm. wasn't a drummer, uh, but he owned a drum shop called Supreme Drums in Walthamstow, northeast London. And he was uh, really into books, and I suppose he was a bit of a scholar. And he was the first person that I know of um, who decided to, you know, to, to set this down, to write it down and work out, you know, where, where had British drums come from and, you know, the ones that survived, particularly the strands which we're going to talk about and which I think are probably of interest to most people are the ones that survived um, the war years and came through in the late 40s, 1950s and went on to be used by, you know, all the, the English drummers, the UK drummers who became international stars you know so uh, yeah. the drum sets that were available to your um to your ringos and your charlie watches and all the rest of them um uh there was a series of them and, and like i say that the the company that obviously is is known internationally is premier so whereas mm-hmm. you know in, you, in america you had you know gretch slingel and ludwig roger and so and you're the you know lady before that yeah uh in Britain, by the time the 60s came around, there were still several strands, but the one, the only one that really survived and um, became international was Premier. So uh, what, Lou did, what Lou did was he recognised four strands, and nowadays we tend in the UK, I think, I think I'm safe in saying this, that in actual fact there are five strands. And can I just, just before I, you know, for a, mention all these i'll just say that the other people also i mean uh, there's a guy called alan buckley do you know of alan buckley no uh, no he's the sort of do- he's the doyen of collectors in this country mm. he almost by accident he went out <laughs> in the 80s and hoovered up every old drum set that was lying around <laughs> to the point where he'd got this little house in in the midlands with 80 drum sets and when i say 80 oh drum God. sets yeah, I mean, I mean, wow. and this is the old stuff. This is the stuff that little old, you know, widows had found themselves left with after the war. <laughs> you know, where, they, where, sure. where their husbands finally died off, and uh-huh. they left this junk. <laughs> and uh, Alan, That's who's funny. an obsessive character, <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah. I mean, he's an obsessive character, Alan, and uh, he's very well known to Rob Cook as well. And um, he he just <laughs> went and hoovered the whole lot up, and he just couldn't stop himself once he started. You know, you, uh, we get obsessive about collecting, and like I say, you go around to his house, and he'd literally have eighty drum sets. It's a very small house, by the way. He got sheds in the garden. He got them <laughs> in the in the coal cellar. He got. Um, and like I said, a lot of these kits, they were big old kits, you know, with consoles and, you know, dance pants, bass drums, 28-inch yeah. bass drums, God knows what. So he, um, and he was a great help to me when, when I wrote the drum book. Um, he's, if, you, if you see the drum book, which a lot of people like because of the pictures, <laughs> the, uh, the first half a dozen kits which make the book are all Alan Buckley's kits, and they're really old kits from the 30s. Uh, through to you know a Gene Krupa kit and so on and uh, um, and and then the third person I, w- I really w- want to mention is Dave Seville uh, who uh, started uh, for sixteen years ran a thing called the Old Drummers Club over here with a with a newsletter uh, that um, just had this amazing amount of information uh, and so those are the people who I was relying on in particular there are lots of other guys as well and maybe I'll 
<laughs> mention a few names as we go along. Um, <laughs> sure. Those guys really sort of got me interested in the history of it. And anyway, to get back to these strands, um, yeah. If you're okay with this, I'll I'll just reel them off. Um, Please. Okay, so here we go. Number one is John Gray. Um, now this goes back to. Oh, God, this goes back into, I think, around 1830, where a, a guy called Solomon came up from the West Country to London and started to, uh, part of his company had a son-in-law called Barnet Samuels, I believe, and he uh, started to import musical instruments from all over the world. So a, a lot of these companies just started out as musical instrument importers and distributors. They weren't necessarily manufacturers. To start with so anyway this um this strand leads to uh, a made-up name called john gray they used the name john gray because it seemed innocuous and english uh, and that <laughs> yeah. eventually you know without going into too much detail that you know there's a lot of anti-semitism obviously and there always has been uh, and, and, sure. and so they just thought if they called themselves john gray rather than uh, Solomon or they they uh, they would do better business, and that leads on to uh, Shaftesbury and Rose Morris. Did you know the Rose Morris company? No. Uh, big how, how do you, Rose Morris? You uh, okay. say Rose Rose and Morris R O S E yeah, Rose and Morris. Morris okay. M O R R. Anyway, that's, that's John Gray. I'll, I'll just listen first, and then we'll come back to them and uh, sure, have a little please. look at you know. They, okay, so the second one is. Uh, John Dallas. So we've got two Johns. We've got a John Gray and a John Dallas. And John Dallas, um, uh, same thing, same thing, importers. Uh, John E. Dallas, J.E. Dallas, is generally shortened to Jed's son. So John E. Dallas and Sons led to Jed's son. Is, does that make sense? A company yeah. called Jedson. Okay, so their pre-war drums are called Jedson. John Dallison's sons led to Jedsons. Yeah, so just one word, J-E-D-S-O-N. So Jedson, you'll Got see it. Jedson drums. That leads on to Carlton drums, which you may have heard of, and Heyman, which sure, you yes. certainly will have done. Uh, yeah. Carlton Heyman, and then eventually to uh, Arbiter Autotune. I don't know if you've seen Autotune drums. Yeah, I've seen them, yeah. Arbiter, yeah, uh, so that that's that's the second stream. Okay, the third one is Boozy and Hawks, and again, Boozy and the Hawks you may well have heard of because to this day are one of the major uh, music publishers in the world. They uh, hmm. they publish a lot of modern classical music. They they own the copyrights to that. But Boozy and Hawks um, owned a thing called Ajax Drums, which again you may have heard yeah. of Ajax, and they. Uh, they had other subsidiaries, Edgeware and Stratford, and also they made a thing called Roger, English Rogers, I should say. Uh, so they actually, this is a really extraordinary thing. They made Rogers, actual Rogers drums under license in London um, in the 60s. Wow. And then they finished up with a thing called Ajax New Sound uh, before they finally gave up the ghost. Um, the fourth one, just to make things a bit easier, is Premier. Premier. Okay. Uh, and they're and Olympic. Do you know about Olympic? Yes. Yeah. It was like sort of a the cheaper version. It just yeah, but budget. like the shells were the same. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Exactly right. But a budget premier. Um, okay. So all those 
four strands, John Gray, Dallas, Ajax, and Premier, pretty simply. Um, they, they were all in, in London, because as you know, we're a very London-centric country. Um, and then the fifth one, which Lou didn't sort of include in his initial treatise, uh, is a company called Beverly. Uh, and Beverly comes from the north, far northeast of England, and they made great drums. And again, they made it over to the States. So you may possibly have come across Beverly drums. Yeah. Um, and the point about all this lot is those are the five strands that made it through to the late 40s, 50s, uh, and were around when, you know, when uh, that generation, the great generation of British drums were growing up. There were lots of other companies, obviously, you know. Um, sure, of course. Uh, there were companies, uh, and uh, Birmingham is the UK's second city, and there were companies like Windsor, uh, Peerless and Parsons, uh, mostly they, uh, they were around. There were other companies in London, AF Matthews, Scarth, Boyle, <laughs> Warwick Supreme, <laughs> Foots, which is the uh, drum company, and, you know, there are loads of others. Um, but basically... Those are the ones that were around before the war, and so less interest to us, perhaps. Sure. I mean, I can go on. I mean, there, uh, there are other companies like after the war, like Reno in Manchester, mm. who made very strange, monstrous drums with incredible internal <laughs> tuning mechanisms. They were up oh, in wow. Manchester, believe it or not. Uh, there are legendary characters in London, Doc Hunt, Vic O'Brien, um, Eddie Ryan later on. Um, do you know what I mean? So, and the, and and there's been a revival in British drum making in the last, you know, since the turn of this, this century, funnily enough. Um, so we now make fantastic drums. Uh, talk about that another time, perhaps. You know, <laughs> the but, new um, stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The new stuff, though. The, the, it's it's wonderful, you know. Sure. Natal, that's great. Which is Jim Marshall, you know, um, that's his legacy, and the British Drum Company. So that again, yes. the British drum company makes some of the best drums in the world. Um, yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, uh, right. Okay. Yeah. So those are the five. Those uh, and and uh, just another quick shout out. Um, Mike Ellis, who I believe you talked to, yeah, uh, has done really good potted histories of these five strands. So if you want to go into detail, you can go online and see. I mean, this is the wonderful thing, but you just Google all this stuff now, uh, and you will find them. You'll find these these companies there, and you know the detail, and 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 also uh, a lot of the catalogues. I mean, it's all about. I mean, this is the it's amazing. Uh, uh, another good friend, Andy Ewell, started a site called Drum Archive. Uh, do you know Drum oh, Archive? Man, I love it. That is there you go. that is how I've found most of these like about most of these companies because it's so cool because you see the logo and then you see the, the little flag of the country next to it and you go yeah <laughs> okay what's up with beverly okay what's up with ajax you know you can you can actually by country see or what's going on in italy you know you can see these companies so he, he's done an amazing job putting those together yeah yeah absolutely so you sort of don't need i mean when <laughs> when i was doing the the drum book because none of this existed so you you know it's i mean nowadays it's, yeah. it's all there so if anyone wants to write the next drum book and try to uh, collate the entire history of the drum set um yeah it's a little, there's nothing a little stopping now. you anymore yeah <laughs> it, it, it's it's all there you know you sift through and, yeah. and, and obviously the forums and stuff are amazing you know but um 
Sure. Um, so there you have it. Um, I think the thing about um, these companies, you look at the catalogs very, very early on, and they started off with rope tension drums. Sure, and of course. They went to single tension, and then they went to tube lugs and so on. Uh, and then once they got past tube lugs, you'll notice that all of them, and I, I, I think I think I'm right in saying in all of those five instances that I've just mentioned, um, they they all started to copy leady lugs. Okay. Uh, and what happened was uh, that something very strange happened, which is that in 1926, I believe George Way. Uh, of Leedy, mm-hmm. as, uh, as most people know, I think uh, he actually made it over to 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 the UK uh, along with a, another chap called Jack Roop, and they brought Leedy products with them, and they made a huge impression on everyone who was making drums at that time. So people saw these Leedy drums, and they were so far in advance of anything that you could get in the UK at the time. Uh, that they were just copied, absolutely slavishly copied. Now, I think, in a way, this is probably a little bit like, you know, when the Japanese started off in the exactly. 60s and so on, and they saw American drums, and their first attempts were absolute slavish copies. Yeah. And uh, I suppose the Japanese went on to improve on them in, in many ways because, of you know, that's the modern era and technology and all the rest of it, you know. Um, uh, and then, the, you know, eventually the, the American companies fought back and, you know, uh, we, we are where we are. Um, but uh, I think a similar thing must have happened then that, uh, because in the 1920s in the UK, people did start to become... You know, we had the Roaring Twenties, as you did, you know, and like I say, you know, everybody was having a great old time, you know, dancing around the, the hotel, or at least the middle classes were. <laughs> this is very much a middle class and sure. upper class <laughs> thing. You yeah, know? not so fun if you're yeah, not in the middle class. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the average person didn't really have access to the, these wonderful hotels and all their marvellous orchestras with, you know, any number of big sure. name, um, you know, Big name band leaders: Geraldo, Bert Ambrose, I don't know Jack Hilton, Victor Sylvester, Henry Hall. They're also so, and and drummers, by the way, some of the early English drummers: Max Abrams, Joe Daniels, Max Baker, Ozzy Noble, Boris Pertil. I'm just reading off a list there: Jackie Greenwood. They, these are guys, you know, from the 30s and and, and to you know through the war as well, through the the, the early 40s and so on. Um, these were the names that we saw in the catalogues. Uh, they, they were aware, and, and also Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong actually made it over here in the 30s, and were aware uh, people are of that. That um, you know the British musicians, because it, it was pretty lightweight stuff. You know, it was it was a mixture of you know vaudeville and dance. You know, you had strict dance tempos, but the whole European things about waltzes and quadrilles yeah whatever you i don't even know you know um um uh and it was pretty uh, pretty sad really a lot of that stuff (laughs) um and i i think the british musicians did gradually become aware that there was something happening over in the usa and uh they were lucky enough people were the people who are hip enough did actually see you know duke ellington 
uh, you know, the reviews of Ellington when he came over. Yeah, yeah. I think probably as early as 1933. Wow. Uh, people were just floored by this. And, and of course, the other thing was that um, they didn't quite know which way to go because, you know, jazz was seen as a fad, same as when rock and roll came along sure, in the 50s. sure. People thought, oh, it's just a fad. It'll go away. You know, it'll go away. The big bands will come back. You know, no, they won't. I feel like Americans a lot of times um, forget sometimes that the biggest, one of our biggest exports was jazz music at that time. Oh, like God, that's yeah. what really yeah. are are like, yeah, our thing that kind of changed the world was jazz music. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, you know, we've been in enthrall to America for that throughout. Throughout the last century, certainly, and probably still today, but um, that absolutely determined the way drums were going to go and the way music was going to go, both in the you know in the twenties and thirties, and then again in the fifties and the sixties. Yeah, um, this is a very loose thesis here, sure, but sure. Um, a similar sort of thing you, you can make arguments was going on in the case. But certainly, what happened with the drum companies was. They took the leady samples. I mean, you could buy leady drums over here uh, before the war, and they, you know, you could buy uh, K Zildjian's over here before the war. Uh, they were expensive, but they, they, they were—they obviously were around. I mean, occasionally a leady, you know, a beautiful leady snare drum will turn up. I know someone discovered one in the junk shop two or three oh. years ago to their utter disbelief and um, <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and bought it for next to nothing and it, it turned out to be the real thing so where where did that come from lord no. yeah um but it worked they were over here but if you look at the early catalogs of uh uh premier and uh, uh all all of the companies um ajax and so on um you, you'll see uh john gray and so on uh you will see that the the drums were exact copies. I mean, they they started off with the you know they have a tube lug or whatever, and then before you know it, they they're doing um, you know the little leady press lug, you know, with a little four um, four screw attachments, and then yeah. immediately after that, they would move to the X, what I call the Xbox lug, um, and this happened in the thirties, and you see that on Premier Dominion and. Dominion Aces and Cotton Kings and so on. I, again, I, I don't want to go in too much because I, I, I forgot more than I ever knew. <laughs> I forget what you know the yeah. names of all these drums. I've got them all down there. I've been doing. I've been doing a vintage column in Rhythm Magazine for the last thirty years. So uh, we've done them all. You know. Yeah, you. Um, I've 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 read it. And yeah, we'll yeah. talk about it more at the end. But you you are obviously a great author. We'll we'll kind of hit, like talk about all of your stuff you're working on. But um, yeah. Now, yeah. so out of all of these brands, so like let's say the Beverly, the Ajax, they're all kind of uh, competing with each other, right? Was there was there a ton of drummers? I guess it's it's there like were. in America where post Ringo, yeah, post Ringo, the world blew up with that. But um, let me back up real quick before we get into that. So during the war, I always ask this question when we're talking about brands like this because I like to get a little bit of that history. Were these companies, I know Premier was, were these companies then, like, like did it say, okay, you guys are now making, um, like with Premier, I think Mike Ellis said it was like the the scopes or the sights for guns. Yeah. Were they all basically transitioned during wartime to other things? Uh, as far as I know. But the, the, the awful thing is, is that we know the history of Premier pretty well. 
Um, we don't yeah. know so much the history of what happened to the others. So um, certainly, I mean, I haven't given you, I sh- I'm being very remiss here. I could give you a lot more history on, on each of these companies and what they were up to. And, you know, maybe I'll give you a little bit more if we've got time. Um, sure. But they all had to go on to other sort of work. There was a very limited um, use for uh, instruments, you know what I mean? So uh, certainly drums. Um, and they pretty much shut down uh, the drum production during the war. I mean, I should say that by the end, you know, we, you know, I was saying that during the 30s, they, they slavishly copied Leedy and Ludigers as well. And some of those drums, if you find them, by the way, they're fantastic drums. They're just as good. You know, they're beautifully made drums mm. and they survived. And they're certainly worth searching out. But by the late 30s, they'd already started to go their own way. So by the late 30s, you'll find all of them, you know, uh, Carlton, Dallas, Premier, and so on, all uh, devising their own uh, Art Deco style lugs, um, and they're, they're very beautiful. And uh, they, they, what I'm saying is that they'd already deviated from the American model to come up with their own sure. versions. They, they, they were steaming ahead. So yeah. th- there was a huge, as far as I can make out, there was a huge need for the you know there's a big market for all this sort of stuff um and they were all doing pretty well as far as i know and they were they, like i say they were all pretty much based in east of london uh, the northeast the the you know, down towards the docks east central of the city and other people know london most of those companies were there and they were most hmm. mostly manufactured there i should just very quickly mention beverly by the way because beverly is in the northeast of uh, of England, which is a heavy, heavily industrialized area. And Beverly was important because they had a huge factory there, a huge factory there, churning out all sorts of stuff. And they, their big thing was they made uh, consoles. So, and this is something that which was very big in this country, I think partly because of the hotel thing. People didn't do touring. You know, like in America, people would tour, I suppose. Um, because, you know, the huge distances. We're here, you tended to set up in the hotel or the, the theatre and leave it there. Um, so they'd, they'd sort of stick these huge drum kits on consoles, the console being a, uh, an advance on the traps tray. Uh, I'm sure, you, sure you're aware sure. of this. Uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, and Beverly made these consoles for for most of the other companies. So, you know, like, for instance, Premier's Swingster console was very famous. It was actually made by... By Beverly up in the northeast, and you know, um, Chick Webb famously had one of those with his Gretsch Gladstone kit. Yeah. So you know those famous pictures of Chick Webb playing exactly. that amazing kit he had, and if you notice, he's got this big console, and that um, that I believe is a Premier Swingster, and that would have been made by Beverly up in the northeast. So, um, so that was going on anyway. So just thought I'd just throw that one in there. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, Carlton. Carton from the house of Dallas, John E. Dallas and Sons, <laughs> uh, which is cut down to Jedson. Um, Jedson drums were, were made by, oh, well, this is a bit of a, I'll be careful I'm going on too many tangents here, but uh, <laughs> they were made by Premier earlier, <laughs> early on. Uh, but they, they, after 1935, they started to make their own drums under the name Carlton. So Carlton's a big name. Um, and Carlton, the name Carlton came from the 
Carlton Hotel, which was a huge landmark in the West End of London. A uh, very famous hotel. It was very posh. It was run by Cesar Ritz. Mm. You know the Ritz? Sure. Is that a name that you probably know? Of course. Putting on the Ritz. Yeah. Um, Sotelier. He, his head chef was Escoffier, who was the, like, the greatest French chef of, <laughs> of, of the day. You know, so, so they call them Carlton because it was at the time. And there's a bit of an R in here, which is that um, – that the Carlton Hotel is not there anymore. It was it, it was it was bombed in 1940 uh, when we had the Blitz yeah. in London. You yeah. know the German Blitz on on London. It was badly bombed and badly damaged, and so it's finished in 1940. And um, the irony there is that's exactly the same time that the Premier Factory was blown up in 1940. God. Uh, and the Premier Factory, by the way, in Standard Road is is literally half a mile from where I'm sitting here now. Wow. Uh, or it was before it was blown up. Um, that, that's, uh, that's where I am in that sort of northwest London, Wembley sort of area. People have heard of Wembley. Sure. Uh, that sort of area. Um, so yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a connection there. Um, uh, scary. So, <laughs> uh, so yes, I think the, the Premier story is is pretty well known, and I think – Mike's probably given you a good account of that, hasn't he? Um, so they all shut down. I mean, what, what happened with Premier was that, uh, as I just said, they they gradually moved from the West End of London as they got better. Premier were very successful right from the very beginning. Uh, Premier is the last of these companies to be formed in 1922. Um, and uh, Albert de la Porta went straight in to produce the best. I mean, if you think of the name Della Porta, which is DP, uh, if you put that backwards, PD, that's Premier Drum. Um, and he, he specifically did this because he wanted to make Premier Drums. His son told me this, by the way, Clifford Della Porta, who was an amazing person I got to know a little bit. Um, and he wanted to make the best drums right from the very, very start. So he started out making drums, you know, like, for instance, they, they supplied drums to, to Jetson for, for a couple of years. Um, but very quickly, he decided, that's it, we're going to make Premier drums. They're going to be the best. And he, he never dropped his standards throughout his entire life. So they are wonderful drums all the way through. And... They moved from, you know, started off right in the middle of London in Soho and, and gradually moved out until there's a big industrial estate just down the road from here. And obviously that was a target for the Germans in the war. So they blew it up and they, they yeah. just they just got this. They've been in there for a few years, actually. But what was a state of the art drum factory? Um, and it was it was burnt to the ground, basically. Uh, as far as, you know, Clifford told mm. me that the only thing that left was like a, a metal box like a metal safe <laughs> which luckily oh had God, that's awful yeah <laughs> so luckily it had uh, various papers and patents or whatever you know in in the you know his uh, his deeds of ownership or whatever and and the other thing that was interesting is you talk about you know everybody shutting down during the war uh premier as you rightly said was uh it was assigned you had to get a job from if you want to stay in business you had to get do something for the war department and it just happened that premier we, we got this job to make um bomb sites for anti-tank aircraft and um they 
they were completely bummed out. So if the, the, the deal was, if you didn't get yourself back up and running within 10 or 10 days or two weeks or whatever, very short space of time, you would lose that contract. So he would lose the company. So he got, got on the train with a chap from the War Department and they went north. They thought, well, we've got to get out of London. So they were on the way up somewhere. I'm not sure where they were on the way, but they, they dropped off in Leicester almost by accident, I was told. Um, and they got off Leicester and they found these terrible old Victorian uh, factories that were in a dreadful state, you know, sand on the floor or whatever. And they said, okay, this is it. And off they go. And, with, you know, within 10 days, two weeks, they'd managed to, <laughs> to you know, get electricity in and get roofs on them. And, <laughs> and they were back up in production, you know. So this is serious stuff, you oh, know. But, yeah. <laughs> but that, that's the thing. And, uh, and then... From that period, again, you know, Clifford Delaporte said to me that uh, the Ajax and Beverly were the two companies you mentioned. He said they, they actually were gearing up for, for drum production towards the end of the war. So they were ready to get going, you know, as soon as the war finished. And Premier didn't. They were working on these, uh, you know, this War Department stuff. They were a very altruistic company premier yeah. certainly albert delaporte was and clifford delaporte's son um, so they're working on this right up to the end but by 1947 they completely resigned and then all the companies did they all came out of the war and completely redesigned uh the drums for the for the modern era you know by that time you know we'd had the stingland radio king and so on and and and, and again as i'm sure mike will have told you but i'll just very quickly say the thing about premier was because they'd been engaged on this very exacting work uh, for gun sites. This was much more accurate than the work they needed to knock up a drum. So they developed this expertise in die casting, which is why immediately after the war, Premier emerged with these amazing die cast Art Deco designs. Uh, Albert Delaporta's son, Clifford Delaporta, did an engineering degree. Uh, and came on board uh, in 1946 and set up a, a design department, and they just carried on this idea that they were going to make the best. And that's why those post-war, and you know, and everybody else followed. I mean, you'll find, you know, if, uh, I can uh, maybe this is what I should do is give you a list of characteristics of British post-war drums yeah. but one of the big things is this 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 expertise in die casting which uh premier had and that's why you know those beautiful art deco curvy the you know the classic premier um full length flush brace lug mm -hmm. you know the one i'm talking about sure um that 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 appears in the, you know in the 40s straight after the war and and, and that run ran right through to the 70s and and along with Diecast hoops. So these are the characteristics of all the UK drums, really, from 1950s and 60s, is that um, they nearly all had diecast hoops. That's interesting. Um, they often had these diecast flush braces. Uh, huh. Yeah, and the, the, the diecasting then extended to like things like stand bases and tom brackets and so on. Hmm. Uh, so if you look at all those... You know what I mean? That's solid casting, yeah. zinc casting. Yeah, exactly. Very, um, very sturdy and, the other, and the, well made. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and uh, you know, Premier obviously, you know, is very famous for the the chrome plating, which they took a lot of care with. They did all their own chrome plating 
uh, in those factories. They had three, three or four facilities in in Leicester, yeah, Leicestershire, yeah. where they were based. Um, but but the other companies did did as well. You know, like um, uh, I should probably get on with this, shouldn't I? Because <laughs> we're not going to get much further. <laughs> well, uh, let's jump. Me. Let's jump ahead to you, you to like yeah, like I said with. All right, so after that kind of the war, obviously, I yeah. mean, that's something here in America that we don't have that history of factories being bombed and having to recover mm. from that. Things did change during the war effort. But then um, let's talk about sort of the the post-war, you know, the British invasion. I mean, it just swept mm. the country. You guys were the the coolest thing that's ever happened. Uh, you got Ringo, like you mentioned, Charlie yeah. Watts. You have all these. Yeah. You have John Bonham, Keith Moon. You have yeah. all these amazing musicians who just took America by storm. Um, who were the? I mean, obviously, Premier was. You know, you have Keith Moon playing Premier. You have uh, Bonham who played Ludwig, which American brand. But um, yeah, what, how yeah. how did companies like Beverly, Judson, Heyman, Ajax, how did that, how did they fare after the war? And who was their major clientele? Okay. Well, no one had any money and we were totally in awe of everything American. So Premier definitely had were the market leaders, but um, Ajax were probably second to Premier and Ajax was a very cool company. Um, If you look at an Ajax set, from post-war 47 onwards right through to the 60s they always look to me very similar to a gretsch kit they've got bullet lugs uh, and they've got die cast hoops uh, and the other important thing is that they uh, i think i'm right in saying this i have to be careful what i say here because things did vary a lot but they they also have international american sizes because as you know one of the big problems with British drums, particularly with Premier, up until about 1968, is that they have some of the drums have what's known as pre-international sizes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, i.e., a standard Remo won't fit, and that's all due to the fact that over in uh, Europe we we run on a metric system, uh, whereas in America you have the imperial. Uh, I mean, funny enough, Britain again. Again, because we've got this so-called special relationship with America, I think we do have a special relationship sure. with America. Uh, we're a halfway house, you know. <laughs> so everybody here now, sure. everybody here now, all the kids, you know, it talks about meters and centimeters and kilometers, but we still measure our distances in miles, the same as you do. <laughs> oh, do you know what I mean? Funny. So we're in a sort of a mess. Yeah, yeah, and the drums in the same sort of mess, you know. So uh, before I get <laughs> go off on too much of another tangent. Uh, Ajax drums were very, very, very cool, and a lot of people played Ajax drums. And like I say, if you look at them, they look very, very similar to uh, to uh, to Gretsch. They look like Gretsch to me. They got they're the ones you know where I was saying that most of the companies had full length um, mm-hmm. uh, flush brace, you know, Premier style lugs. Uh, Ajax didn't. They had. These these bullet lugs with uh, and because everybody had die cast hoops, therefore an Ajax set looks very similar to uh, a Gretsch set, you know. And people, I think some some people anyway were aware of that. So a lot of the big pre rock and roll stars uh, certainly played Ajax, um, but it didn't seem to 
Uh, you know, and people played them when they were young. I'm just trying to think of a name. You know, people like Ginger Baker played Ajax drums hmm. uh, early on. Everybody at some stage played Premier. The, 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 there's the thing that people started out on because, because people had no money. <laughs> I mean, we were really impoverished in the 50s yeah. when these guys were starting off. Sure. So, um, one one of the, one of the names that uh, that everybody will talk will bring up is um, is Gigster. And whether you've come across Gigster, no. But Gigster was the um, the cheapest version uh, that you could possibly get. Just about everybody can think of started out with a Gigster. I mean, Gigster say they, they were awful. I mean, they, they were just single headed things with terrible. The beginner. That's that's your 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 starter. Uh... A real, real, real cheap, real cheap yeah. beginners drums, but there were a Got lot it. of them about. There were a lot of them about. So that was uh, this was this was Jensen's. Uh, that was their cheapest, uh, you know, Dallas's Johnny Dyson's, uh, Jensen's cheapest thing hmm. uh, was Gigster. Um, but and and at the top, uh, you know, like and everybody, you know, like all your uh, anyone you want to name, you know, Phil Collins, Bill Bruford. Uh, pretty much anyone you can think of, I imagine, started out on a gig because they were cheap, you know. And then they would uh, very often move up to a Premier Olympic, uh, Olympic, uh, you know, Premier's budget version. Uh, but as we know, I think this is very similar to America as well. Uh, they had the same shells as Premier's. You know, a drum company would just make one shell. That was it. It's a drum shell. <laughs> no one knew what they were. Most British ones, by the way, were birch. That's interesting. Um, and before before the war, they were ash. Uh, there was a lot of ash wood about uh, before the war, and then after the war, people tended to be birch. So you know, um, most of these companies made three ply birch with solid reinforcing rings. You know, which cut off from a beach. So birch and beach. You know, these these are the you know, whereas you had maple or whatever, mahogany in uh, in America. Um, a few people played other things, like uh, like for instance Carlton. Carlton, they they weren't terribly well known, but they were around, and they they would occasionally get uh, an endorser. You know, like Carlton's big thing in the sixties was a guy called Bobby Graham, who had a kit called the Big Beat, which had two big top toms, which no one had. Uh, in the in the, back in the day, you know, he had a twelve inch and a fourteen inch top tom. You know, what I mean, two toms mounted on the bass drum, which hardly anybody yeah. had uh, at that time. Very innovative, he, 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 yeah. And he influenced Dave Clark, who people will know about Dave Clark Five. Of course, uh, he influenced Dave Clark to have two toms the wrong way round on his Rogers set. Hmm. Does, does that ring a bell? Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. And so, Bobby Graham's very important. Well, Bobby Graham. We've been done for slander now. Uh, Bobby Graham is the guy who actually played on those Dave Clark records. I mean, Dave Clark was a Dave Clark, a very clever man who produced that stuff. Sure, that's common. Uh, that happens uh, again. Going, going slightly off, people know it, it happens. Yeah, yeah. And Bobby Graham's also got the distinction that he, he played on. You know, you really got me by the Kinks, which is you know generally recognised as the first heavy riff record. Way back in 1964. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so he was, a, you know, a top session guy uh, in this country. Auto Jetson, um, their their thing was called Autocrat, 
have you come across the name Autocrat? I've I've seen just on Drum Archive, just again in uh, in um, mag in in catalogs because a lot of yeah. these. It's just interesting. Uh, kind of a side note is these don't like I I'm speaking for myself in my limited yeah. sort of you know I'm not in a I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is not a hub for you know finding crazy vintage drums. There's stuff around, but yeah. but it's not a thing where you go and you see. You know, you come across um, like an Ajax drum set somewhere. I'm sure they are in America, for, you know, around yeah. a little bit. I'm sure, but you don't find these just sitting around. Like even in in music shops, um, you don't see these very often popping up. Um, which is just yeah. an interesting kind of side note. That is that the same for you guys with? Let's say, is it more rare to see like a Slingerland set sitting in a shop than it is the you know some of these? Yeah, I mean, well, one of the great tragedies of all this is that what happened was because because you know once Ringo came along, everybody wanted a Ludwig. Yeah, uh, everybody wanted anything that was American anyway because it just appeared to be so much more the same as they wanted a Fender guitar. But there sure. was a good reason to want a Fender guitar because we couldn't get anything close to it over here. But we did have great drums, and the irony is that, like I say, those drums from the fifties and sixties, they all had very thin shells with reinforcing rings and they had die cast hoops and, you know, really well-made die cast uh, lugs. And so they're actually very good drums, but they look terribly outdated and sad and old. Mm. And, you know, they had this, ter- we had this terrible image problem, you know, so like an autocrat set, if you find, if you see an autocrat set from the, uh, uh, from the sixties, <clears throat> they've got these, premier style full length flush lugs but they're sort of very bulbous and if you look at it you suddenly think well hang on a minute that's exactly like the reissued yamaha recording custom you know that was reissued in 2016 yeah uh i don't know you know people are familiar with this you know great drums uh but they made that famous recording custom lug which obviously by the way is copied directly from Premiers, so, uh, mm. Yamaha. That might be saying that. Uh, that's a <laughs> you're, you're in trouble. Yamaha. I love Yamaha, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Yamaha player. I, I think Yamaha, fantastic, a great company. Um, but that lug, you know, which um, Premier, you know, used for years and years until it became, it started to look out of fashion. So if Premier stopped doing it just at the moment that Yamaha started doing it. <laughs> that's But anyway, an autocrat kit um has got these bulbous versions of that lug and if you look at it, you think well like i say it's it's very much like a you know the latest recording custom designer we all know yeah. these are terrific drums and they are out there and, and what happened with with them is they were all thrown away people just oh boy dumped them in skips and it's only oh. in recent years that people you know through you know uh, we, we we have a vintage show here run by Simon John, Simon John, by staff of Simon John, vintage show that Rob Cook comes over to you. You know, we have that in, in the Midlands every year. Um, and these drums turn up there, and we, we, we do now have a, a lovely set of people who realize the value of these drums and are doing them. So, I mean, I, I, would, I would advise anyone, if, if you see one, grab it. Grab Definitely. it, hang on to it. You know, the yeah. same with Beverly drums. I mean, Beverly drums from... Um, Beverly was bought by Albert Delaporte of Premier in, in 1958. So from 1958 on, Beverly drums that were actually made in the Premier factory. Um, mm. But they were made very – but it was a separate company. And Beverly, they used to advertise themselves as 
American style drums. And so they've got a premier shells, which are great shells, uh, but slightly more Americanized, you know, slightly more hip hardware. So if you see uh, a, a Beverly kit, uh, these are great sets of drums. I shouldn't be telling you, really. It should be a secret. You know? <laughs> yeah, we're going <laughs> to start still, buying them up. Everybody's going to be buying them up. Um, to just quickly say about Heyman, I mean, Heyman came about because um, Ivor Arbiter, who's the guy who sold Ringo his first Ludwig, who used to own Drum City in, in London, um, Ivor Arbiter um, bought Carlton. Okay, so the Carlton by that time okay. was dying on its yeah. feet. Uh, again, because it had this old-fashioned image, um, so they gave up the ghost. Uh, and also, Ivor joined with Dallas, if you remember, that's the uh, the parent company of Carlton, uh, and yes. they formed a company called Dallas Arbiter. And Ivor was always very much into drums, and uh, he was very interesting guy you should talk to. Bob Henry about him, um, and uh, he decided to make because Ivor had, had had the Ludwig. Ivor was the guy who brought Ludwig into Britain uh, in 1962 onwards, where you know, um, ending up with you know Ringo buying them, so so on. Story everybody knows. Um, but he dis- he he lost that dealership, and he decided he was going to make a British drum to rival the American drums, because up until that time, it was just Premier, and Premier by that time was starting to look rather old-fashioned at that time. Um, so he got together, he bought the Carlton factory down in uh, in Kent and took over the whole Carlton thing, just said, right, we're going to just make something much more American. You know, so um, uh, that, and that's how Heyman came about, and they designed the lug, uh, Jerry Evans, who was working with him, had had a um, a George Way kit uh, in the sixties with the round lug. Exactly, yeah. and they were thinking, "Well, what sort of lug can we have? We've got to have separate lugs. We can't have this nonsense flush brace Premier stuff. We've got to have American separate lugs." And they looked at it, and they and Jerry said, "Well, I, I like this round turret lug. You know, the famous turret lug." And you know the the engineers down there said, "Well, that, that's the easiest thing to do. Just to, you know, we can knock up a circle. So if you look at the Heyman lug, uh, superficially, <laughs> it's a little bit like the DW lug, but it's actually simpler. It's just a, of course. It's a circle, you know. Uh, so they made that, and that that immediately made them look fabulously modern. And then Ivor had this crazy idea about lining the shells with metal. You know, he actually had the Peisty dealership at the time, and he used." Heisty symbol metal to load. The idea then was, be, you know, 1968, we're talking about before miking had really taken off properly. And uh, so sure. uh, they wanted to make the drums loud. More said, projection. You know, and, yeah. You know, Premier yeah. aren't as loud as, you know, they aren't as loud as Ludwig. Everybody wants a Ludwig. So how can we make them loud? I'll tell you what, we'll load them with metal. <laughs> so he did that. And of course, it became, it was ridiculous, you know. Uh, so then they said, well, why don't we, we'll paint the inside like, um, you know, like, like Ludwig's Reser coat. Uh, so the Heyman vibrosonic lining is, you know, uh, just white paint, but it's really thick white paint. It's very reflective uh, in a, a surface, and it did make those drums loud. And they also had a 13-inch tom because we didn't have 13-inch toms back then. We all had 12-inch toms. Do you know what I mean? So that's why Heyman 
took off. And the Haymon yeah, was a definitely. real last stab attempt by the British drum industry to come up. And it was very successful. I mean, it, you know, lots of people played Haymon drums, late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, uh, the yeah. most famous is probably Simon Kirk with Free. You know, if you if you see the footage of, you know, Free at sure. the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970 with this battered Heyman kit i mean people only had one drum kit in those days i mean the, the heads on the kit are absolutely battered to death you know and there's simon thrashing <laughs> away playing all right now it's a wonderful sight uh and that That's is so a Heyman cool. drum kit you know and and again uh those drum kits are gold dust again now i shouldn't be saying this because up until very recently you could pick them up for next to nothing but um i, I think probably the same way as you can get a uh, a slingling kit, as you say, cheaper in America than we can here. If we if we want to buy a 60s slingling, it's going to cost us a lot of money to get it over here, uh, whereas you can probably pick them up yeah. still over there fairly cheap. Yeah, I uh, mean, same thing here. Everything's you know? getting... Yeah. Everything's getting pretty expensive. I mean, that's that's I think yeah. the and I'm probably not helping by having a podcast about vintage drums, but um <laughs> exactly. The the interest yeah. is growing. Um which I think yeah. is a good transition to. So so before we end, I'm assuming that like many drum companies, they just got beat by the global market of of uh, obviously Premier went on and then they're, they're still around. I know it's more of uh, you know, being yeah. made in the, in the Far East, but um so it's kind of different, but I would just imagine right that these these went the way of just they couldn't keep up with, you know. They the they all market. went they all went except for Premier. So, you know, of those yeah, five yeah. lines, Premier ended up making Beverly drums, and Beverly drums are fabulous. And if you see those, get one. Um, and uh, all the others, they just threw in the threw in the tail. You know, Ajax, Boozy yeah. Hawks gave up. I mean, Ajax, Boozy Hawks, you know, major company, they eventually um, started to take drums from... Um, from Premier also. So that they all went. Uh, Premier did was already way ahead of everybody else, and they actually did really well. I mean, because the, the beat boom was so big that even though everybody wanted a Ludwig kit, most people couldn't afford one. So, you know, a Premier kit was two-thirds of the price of a, a Ludwig kit, you know, so people still went on buying Premiers and Olympics, and they, they were good drums. So they went, and then Premier went through. Uh, in fact, I mean, Premier... They made this massive factory was newly built in 1977, which is right at the end of you know. Uh, it's almost like their trouble started from the moment they they moved to this massive factory. But they've had several, <laughs> you know, revivals ever since. I mean, every decade, Premier has reinvented. Yeah. I mean, what happened, of course, was that the the original family, the Delaporters, um, uh, were finally, you know, the same way as Ludwig sold out and Slingland sold out and so on. Um, the the, the Delaporters family, being altruistic, they probably stuck it out a little bit too long. Yeah, to the point where you know, I mean, they could have they could have sold up earlier and taken the money, but they didn't. They they stuck with it up to the point where they were losing so much money that they were ousted. So yeah. that's another that's story. Noble. But you know, they were ousted <laughs> out of the family. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh they were ousted from the from the company. And and from that and, and that by the way is when the pre- the whole premier image changed completely. So you went from the classic premier that we all know and love to the Signia and the Janista range. Yes, sure. Which are also very much to do. I don't know whether again, I don't know whether Mike told you about this, but Yamaha mm-hmm. bought Premier. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. And Yamaha, and I've got a lot of time for Yamaha as a company. They actually did Premier a huge favour. I mean, they, you know, kept them from going completely under, modernised the factory, put in all their air seal moulds and stuff. And and then when they left, they left them there. Uh, you know, so that Premier could then modernise, and they came up with the Signia range, which is their first maple drum set you know they yeah, made wonderful drum drums set, uh, in britain before yeah yeah and you know they went on and then they reinvented themselves several times i mean it's been very much a rocky road as we know uh but you know quite a few generations of premier drums after that are really terrific drums you know right up until very modern times and then yeah. in the end of course they, they ended up you know shipping it all to the far east the same yeah. as everybody else but that is another that's another long, story complicated story <laughs> yeah. uh, well jeff why don't we tell people here at the end where they can uh where they can find you because we didn't mention this at the beginning but you obviously are a very uh, esteemed author um people can find the drum handbook and the drum book which is like just the cover of that alone is very uh like you see it it's like if you search i don't think you did it on purpose but you you sort of like you 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 tricked Google because if you ever type drum book, <laughs> you come up right away. Obviously. Yeah, it's the drum book. So yeah. um, yeah, you have no idea how much hassle that was. Uh, yeah, no, um, the drum book is the first edition is nineteen ninety seven, and then ten years later, two thousand seven, there's a second edition, um, and I you know I, I had ten years more knowledge i suppose but we what we did was the second edition i mean look look go on and buy it because i can say this in all honesty because i don't make any money out of it because any money i made out of those books i made at the time you know what i mean so so i'm saying this sure. um yeah uh, you know uh, it's quite very simply yeah so you know just feel that um yeah get them because they're full of wonderful pictures they're, they're it's called the drum book and it's called the history of the rock drum kit but it isn't it's the history of the kit it was a misnomer it's basically 100 years of you know drum development and i did my it nearly killed me i mean i did my utmost to put the entire history of the drum set into one small book you know smallish book sure and then and the illustrations the the photo the photography in there is wonderful i can say that because i didn't do it uh (laughs) really lavishly illustrated and then what i did do was in the back of this book, there's uh, a potted history of 80, about 80 drum companies. So that really did nearly kill me. I, uh, um, and, mm. um, you know, and they, it pretty much stands up. I mean, I, obviously there are mistakes here and there, but, um, you know, all the stuff I've just been talking about, most of that is, is in there in much, much, much more detail. Um, so it's, it's a really, you know, it's a nice read, you know. Well, mine is in the mail, and I'm excited to get it. And and like you said, you're not making money on it anymore. You you can no. find it for I think I found it for like six dollars. So really, people can can just Google it and find it. Yeah, get get secondhand ones. I found a source of. <laughs> I nearly bought a dozen the other day because <laughs> I thought oh, I'll have those and give them to people. Um, yeah, That's so you can, you can pick them up. The drum handbook, by the way, is is about the actual what what a drum kit is. It's not about the history. There is a bit of history in there, but it's about, you know, how a drum kit is built and, and all that sort of sure. stuff. So I'll just say that, you know, uh, a lot of that, I was inspired by John Aldridge's book, you know, the very first one, and, yeah. and Harry Kangany, you know, the you know, the Harry Kangany book, the, the first one is a beautiful little book, the history of the American companies. Uh, and then Rob Cook has done this yeah. incredible, you know, thing, you know, of uh, – 
collating oh, yeah. the whole of you know just absolutely amazing but this is the entire issue of the trump set so it ne- i say it nearly <laughs> did for me but um, i'm glad i did it someone had to do it oh, that's awesome <laughs> well and then before we go um people can also check out john bonham the thunder of drums which is just a famous book which you wrote with chris welch yep. and also and uh you wrote a cream book and then um yep. there's also bbc's rock school which i've oh, posted videos of yeah. which again i think we can talk about that for for an hour but um people can search that on youtube and check it out i'm, and, just, uh, I'm just gonna add one thing which is and also rhythm magazine which i've written for for the last 30 sure. years and please subscribe to rhythm because in these difficult times, if it disappears, it will never reappear. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going, you Absolutely. know, uh, and I've written a vintage column in there for, I think I've done 230 vintage columns now. Uh, we do one every month and, Amazing. Uh, but, yeah, and they're, they're fabulous with huge help from all these people I mentioned and many more. Um, uh, so it's a treasure cool. show. So yeah, rhythm, rhythm. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show, no and I've really enjoyed talking with yeah. you and uh, getting to know you over the the last couple of weeks of getting ready for this. So I'm, I'm excited to get my uh, drum book in the mail oh, and, yeah. and start digging I'm in. Sure, you'll enjoy it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah, and thanks for asking. And uh, I hope there weren't too many mistakes. <laughs> oh, you did great. All right, good luck to everybody. Keep safe. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, speak to you soon. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning. This is a Gwyn Sound Podcast.